Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week, and this is a special edition of On DOD. On the program this time, a panel discussion I moderated at this year's edition of the Navy League's Sea Air Space Expo in National Harbor, Maryland. This conversation is focused on personnel, and specifically what the sea services say is a coming revolution in how military training is conducted. For broadcast purposes, we've had to abridge our discussion just a bit with leaders from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, and Military Sealift Command, but we will post a link to the full video of the entire conversation at federalnewsnetwork.com. Now, on to the event. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here for this year's um, Sea Airspace Manpower Panel. What the Navy League has asked us to do here today is, is have a bit of a conversation around the general proposition that, that partly because of advances in technology, the, the, the way we do training and the way we're going to do training five years from now is probably very different than how we did it five years ago. And if you were here on Monday, I think you heard CNO say a couple of times that one of the drivers of that evolution is, is the fact that we've learned an enormous amount about the process of learning and the science of learning over the past several years. And I, I took that to mean a couple of things, and, and our panelists will correct me if this is the wrong framing of this, but, but, but I think it means a couple things. One is the idea of putting somebody in a, in a C school for a few weeks and just force feeding them PowerPoint slides ad infinitum is probably not the optimal way that most people learn. And, and the second is there's a huge amount of variation person to person in how people learn and the pace at which people learn. So because of that, you need to have tools to measure people's aptitudes at different stages in their career and give them training, as the Navy would say, when it's relevant, ready and relevant. So that's kind of the framing mechanism I wanted to use, use for this. Um, you know, training needs to be appropriate to, to where people are in their careers and maybe deliver that in, in smaller, more relevant bites. And I think our folks are going to talk about how they're moving in that direction. Let me just briefly introduce our panelists. We have with us Rear Admiral John Nowell, who's the Director of Military Personnel Plans and Policy in the CNP's office. Brigadier General Calvert Worth, Commanding General of Marine Corps Training Command. Rear Admiral Brian Penoyer, Commander of uh, Forcecom at the Coast Guard. And actually, a last-minute substitution. Um, your uh, programs probably reflect that we were expecting the superintendent of the Merchant Marine Academy, Admiral Buono. He had to cancel at the last minute, unfortunately. Michael Morris, the director of Total Force Management at Military Sealift Command, was good enough to join us at the last minute to, to substitute, so we appreciate that. With that, Admiral Nill, you want to start us off? Sure, thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and, uh, and certainly great to see some old uh, shipmates uh, in the audience. We've been on a journey since about 2015 um, to update not just the way that we're delivering uh, training, uh, but also how we are managing our talent. And as uh, in 2015, Admiral Moran at the time was our Chief of Naval uh, Personnel, and he started us on a journey with an initiative called Sailor 2025, and it's about modernizing our personnel system. Uh, it's about improving our training. Again, we call that Ready Relevant Learning as Jared mentioned, and then it's about uh, career readiness. How do we make sure the sailor uh, is resilient, tough? Uh, do we have the support uh, for the families? Are we developing them as leaders? And, and when you look at the personnel system modernization, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more later in the panel, so I won't spend a lot of time up front, but we're using an industrial age uh, model. Um, for some in the audience uh, who are of similar age to me, 
Uh, what we're using now is exactly what they used uh, when we came in. And so we're taking those 55 different systems, 256 or so programs of record, none of which are interoperable, and we're collapsing them uh, into one family. We're going to take it into the cloud. We're going to move it from behind uh, the CAC card, and we're going to allow sailors uh, to access their records, negotiate for orders, uh, do their training um, from their own uh, iPhone or uh, or mobile device. And so, and, and it's not just about the IT, it's also about the processes uh, and the policies, and we didn't wait for IT to change that. Ready Relevant Learning is the second pillar uh, for Sailor 2025. It's all about a continuum of learning, and, and the way that I like to describe it, and, and you talked about it, uh, Jared, for the Navy right now, the way we've been doing business is we give folks, you know, this much training, and they go to their ship. They use about half of that, so they, and then about half of them stay in, and for the half that stay in, we have to give them the training over here all over again um, because the skills have actually, the technology has changed, uh, they, didn't, they didn't use it in their first tour, um, and therefore we have to retrain them. So it, uh, it makes no sense. And so the first piece part uh, of Ready Relevant Learning is what we call block learning. We completed that at the end of last fiscal year. Uh, 54 of the ratings that are going uh, through Ready Relevant uh, Learning. There are some ratings like NOOP that really already have that model, like special operators that have different training models. Uh, but we finished blocking them to figure out where in their career did sailors need training, and therefore uh, we cut some of that initial accession training down. In some cases, we added it. Um, it is about readiness, and we added it to different parts. Now we're into how do we deliver it differently. So it's content modernization. Uh, we know uh, that they learn better by not having, you know, Ferris Bueller's professor uh, with PowerPoint slides. If I'm starting to sound like that, I apologize. But, but it's, it's more about can they do it better on a device? Can they do it better 3D? Can they do it better virtually? Uh, do they do it better with an avatar, uh, for instance, like our LCS trainer out in San Diego, where they learn an engine room uh, with using an avatar and a computer lab, then they go in uh, and they do some of that virtually. Then we link them with their team and we finish off in a mission module where they're doing the actual evolution uh, required uh, for that mission. That's where we're going. And again, I'm happy to talk more about uh, some of those piece parts, but we're, we're pretty excited about it. And the career readiness is all about how do we support them and make sure that they are resilient and tough. And the last thing that I'll mention there is that as part of all this, when we look at recruit training command uh, and our sailors coming in through boot camp, we took what was about 60% PowerPoint slides and we turned that on its uh, head and it's now hands-on training, reps and sets for watch standing, for damage control, for firefighting, for actually standing watches and walking around and doing gauges. It sounds rudimentary, but when you get sailors that have been stressed as part of that with a, a crucible event at the end, when they get to the ship, they're a lot uh, readier. And then it's on us to make sure that we keep refreshing that training at the right time, closer to the waterfront, sometimes in brick and mortar, sometimes not, and sometimes done on the ship. So uh, looking forward to talking more about that. All right. Thank you, sir. General Worth. First and foremost, uh, 
Thank you for having me here this morning. For, the, for Training Command and for the Marine Corps, the signing of and issuance of the National Defense Strategy in 2017 signaled that we're going to need to do some things differently in the Marine Corps. As we've emerged from the global war on terror, as we've emerged from you know, many, many years now doing things that are not necessarily integrated with the Navy, we're returning to a world that is recognizable uh, to those of us who have been around for 20 plus, 30 years in terms of our, our relationship with the Navy. But the Commandant has also implored us to think differently about how we train and think differently about how we'll employ the force in a Marine Corps Force 2025 type of environment. One, that environment characterized by great power competition, characterized by a highly technical environment, a requirement to synchronize and link different types of technology, and then deliver force on the battlefield in ways that should be, if we're going to move in a revolutionary um, direction, should be completely different than how we've done this in the past, in the past 30 years, in order to truly rival a peer or near peer competitor. So the Commandant has asked us, uh, particularly myself at Training Command, and I have a partner at MAGTAF Training Command, Marine Air Ground Task Force Training Command, who is concerned with how we train in the live fire, exercise, live virtual constructive environment in the operational forces. For myself at Training Command, I have the responsibility for all of our entry-level MOS training, all of our career progression MOS training, and then advanced skills MOS training. So we have roughly 25,000 folks in the pipeline at any one point in time. But it is that finishing of every Marine being a rifleman that occurs within training command. They're recruited, they're trained at the depots, and then in training command, we provide them with their MOS training, making them all riflemen, and then providing them with their technical skill sets. Contemplating how we do that and thinking differently about how we train um, also means that we're looking very, very closely at what the Navy is doing with its ready, relevant learning. In many ways, the Marine Corps benefits directly from their movement in that direction because 52% of our training in the Marine Corps actually occurs at other service schools for entry-level training. Air Force schools, Air Force bases, I should say, um, equipped and supported by Marines in the cadres, Army installations, Navy installations. 52% of our training actually occurs joint service installations. That's a big deal. So we watch very, very closely the movements in the direction of more technical, flipped classrooms, persistent learning environments, things of that nature that will allow us to not only introduce our entry-level Marines to their technical fields and their technical skills, but also entertains new methodologies for how we deliver that training. Training Command is focused right now really on three pillars. We know that we need to continue to recruit and train great people. We also need to bring great people into the training environment as instructors. Um, so back to the talent management aspects that uh, Admiral Knoll just mentioned, we need to ensure that we have great people on the podium teaching, but they need to teach differently. We need to flip the classrooms and have the classrooms not be industrial age modeled where the instructor is at the center of the universe, but now we need to flip the classroom so that the student becomes the center of that universe. The student has a persistent learning environment that is dynamic, that is enabled by technology, that allows the student to go into the environment, learn at a pace that they can learn at, 
reinforce the skill sets, better synthesize the information, and potentially overall reduce time to train in that environment. So we're focusing on the people first as the center of gravity, and then we focus secondly on the second pillar, which is technological innovation and equipment modernization in our classrooms. And for the Marine Corps, as I just told you, we have a lot of our school houses that are actually located on other service installations, but within the Marine Corps we have old infrastructure that needs to be modernized, that needs to be uh, better enabled to support the highly technical equipment and devices and those persistent learning environments that we've described. Internet access, Wi-Fi access, persistent, not purchased by the student in their barracks room, but existing just like it does on a college campus. Almost any college campus, you can walk aboard the college campus and the students can access the internet from wherever they are on campus. In other words, if they want to learn, they can learn. If they want to move more rapidly through the information and the technical uh, curricula, then they can do that at their pace. We should encourage that. That requires a shift, a revolutionary shift in how we've delivered training and education. Um, and the Marine Corps is moving in that direction. And then finally, in terms of resourcing and budget, we need to think more distinctly about how we're going to not only implement some of these changes, but sustain them over time. For the Marine Corps, who spends a lot of its capital on new equipment and operationally focused enablers, we'll need to think a little bit differently about how we will implement and then sustain these new capabilities to actually achieve the environment that we want and the environment that we know we're going to need to fight in 2025. So I can provide you with some specific examples of how we're going about uh, this change and how we're implementing this change and who we're watching in terms of what, what types of things the other services are learning. I'll be able to talk in more detail about those things uh, during our question and answer session. So thank you. Thank you, General. That is Brigadier General Calvert Worth, the Commanding General of Marine Corps Training Command. Just before that, you heard from Rear Admiral John Noel, the Navy's Director for Military Personnel Plans and Policy. It's part of our conversation with senior military personnel officials on how they're modernizing training at this year's Sea Air Space Conference. We'll have more after a quick break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation about modernizing military training at this year's Sea Air Space Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. Before the break, we heard from Brigadier General Calvert Worth, the Commanding General of Marine Corps Training Command, and Rear Admiral John Nowell, the Navy's Director for Military Personnel Plans and Policy. Next up is Rear Admiral Brian Penoyer, the Commander of the Coast Guard's Forces Command. Hey, good morning, and uh, thanks. Uh, I'll... I'll, uh, I'll make some remarks I think that are very consonant with uh, Admiral Noll and uh, General Worth. Um, just a couple of quick points and then I'll, I'll tell you a little vignette that I think kind of brings to life what, I'm, what I want to convey. Uh, in the Coast Guard we're, uh, compared to our DOD colleagues, our sister services, we're a relatively small, small force. But that leanness has allowed us, I'd say probably for about coming up on two decades now, to have really realigned our training philosophy uh, to performance-based training system. So much of, much of Admiral Noel's points, General Worst's points are, are spot on uh, with our experience. 
Uh, we essentially have, at least through our formal training system, uh, focused exclusively on the actual skills and tasks that are relevant at, the, at a particular career ladder, uh, largely because it's, it was economical and efficient for us to do so, not because we thought it was a great idea. Uh, but it turns out to be uh, a wonderful idea. Uh, and uh, what I'll talk about today is not so much that performance-based training system, but really the interaction uh, with the, the modern world. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a fan of referring to the fourth industrial revolution, which I would loosely describe as being the convergence of computing power, sensors, and data analytics, the big data. So you add those three things together in a networked world, and it's a substantively different uh, operating environment than even the information technology world that we previously were still coming to grips with. Um, and, and so let me, uh, let me uh, just give you a vignette that kind of illustrates what that environment means. Uh, one of our uh, boutique schools, uh, core competency of the Coast Guard is surf operations. Uh, and we have a boutique exquisite training center, the uh, Motor Lifeboat School out at Cape Disappointment on the West Coast where we conduct some of the highest risk training that we do anywhere in the Coast Guard. Uh, essentially, we teach people how to operate and breaking uh, bar surf. Um, and part of that, as you can imagine, is an, an, an intensely focused performance-based training for the coxswains. So the punchline of the fourth industrial revolution for me is that it has democratized capability at a level that I don't think we're all well suited to acknowledge and and adapt to. The Motor Lifeboat School, for example, leveraging a, a, a test bed program for uh, a small UAS, commercially off-the-shelf UAS test bed, let's see what we can do with it. They jumped into that at the Motor Lifeboat School. Uh, the enlisted crew at the Motor Lifeboat School qualified uh, with FAA certification to pilot these things uh, and began using them uh, as uh, videography capability for the performance of these boats in surf. There's some limitations, you know, right now the commercial UAS have uh, difficulties operating more than 20 knots of wind, and as you can imagine, we like, we like it when it's worse than that for our training purposes. But the UAS brings high def videography that moves with the small boat through the surf. That videography is immediately uploaded to uh, the computer back at the, at the schoolhouse, by the time the guys take off their dry suits and come back up to debrief what just happened in training, they've used off-the-shelf technology to edit uh, what I would describe as a highlights reel, but it's actually much more intensely focused on uh, the performance. What was the standard? How did you do that? Why did you make this decision? How did you apply those decision rules? Uh, and they literally get a debrief uh, with a level of fidelity that we've never seen before. It recently occurred as an example of where the fourth IR has taken us, that at one of these debriefs, there was, uh, the instructor said, well, geez, I really would love to, to, to talk more about this, but I just, I don't have that. Uh, and, and lest you think this is a uh, uh, young person's dynamic only, one of the more experienced, more senior officers in charge, senior enlisted guy or gal uh, of my era in the room said, oh, no problem flicked open his smartphone and airdropped that file to the instructor and it was on the screen in under 15 seconds. <laughs> I tell you this story because it has made a dramatic difference in the feedback cycle, the, the, the OODA loop results for the trainee, 
but also because it kind of illustrates the fact that our waterfall uh, project management approach to both technology, deployment of systems, acquisition, and use of them in the field, and our design of training is effectively being outmoded by the reality of the operating environment. And so I've become a fan of, uh, of trying to describe where we are and where we're going strictly in terms of the idea uh, of moving to an agile development cycle and the challenge that presents to a military organization. One of my colleagues was uh, reflecting on it this morning and said, it's really difficult to brief your boss when you don't have an end-to-end -end project plan with a great cost estimate. What you have is the first cycle, and we don't know where this is going, and it's going to make a difference for our, uh, our uh, folks in the field. Um, it takes a whole new paradigm for how we acquire and deploy capability, how we design our, our training system, uh, and uh, I'm really excited about where it's headed. But uh, if you look at the Motor Lifeboat School as an example, everything I just told you was done under exceptions to the rules. Nothing they did there was, uh, I'm going to say, organizationally intentional. And that's the lesson to learn from where we're at in the training system today. Thanks. Thank you very much, sir. Mr. Morris. Michael Morris is the Director for Total Force Management at Military Sealift Command. Military Sealift Command uh, operates its ships primarily with the civilian personnel. We're part of the Department of the Navy. Some of the, the ships are operated by private sector companies under contract to MSC. Some of them we operate ourselves. I, I see probably the biggest change in uh, at Military Sealift Command, and I think probably in the commercial maritime industry, is increasing use of simulators. Our partners use them. Uh, our partners have them. We use them for, uh, especially for officer training. Our partners use them for uh, non-officer training as well. We, for instance, have a going to have 14 high-speed uh, aluminum catamarans with water jet propulsion. Coast Guard requirements uh, for those people, for all the officers, require that they have classroom time, simulator time, and, there, and the simulator has to be an exact replica of the, the bridge on a high-speed vessel, and also requires them to have 14 actual entries and departures from ports in daytime and nighttime. There's practical elements there. There is classroom. There's simulator time. Uh, we're going to get some uh, new uh, towing and salvage ships. They're going to be dynamic positioning system equipped, like some of the OSVs in the offshore oil industry are. Uh, we're going to have our people certified by a, an outside certifying organization, actually, to operate those things. And that requires classroom time, requires simulator time, and it requires loads of actual onboard time. We're in the position where not all of our people we get are green when we first get them. Um, we require them to hold the Coast Guard credential for the position that they're actually applying for. But we're also responsible for their upward development after that. The uh, maritime training schools and other schools and the maritime academies all focus very heavily, not just on classroom, but practical, actual wrench turning and getting in there and having people do things. We have a couple of training facilities ourselves. We share Fleet Training Center San Diego with the active duty side. We actually have a training facility in New Jersey. We're going to relocate to Fort Eustis, where we also already have some things installed there. We have an unrep training facility actually in, uh, in, in uh, Little Creek, very much focused on hands-on. Yes, there's a little bit of classroom component, but very much hands-on. Go out and uh, run the rigs. We've even had some partner or, uh, nations from Europe and from Canada actually have come to our unrep probe uh, maintenance course. 
And I asked my people, how did they even find out about it? And he said, well, it's word of mouth. But it's very much, it's not, that's a course where you, you were taught how to take it apart, how to clean it, how to fix it, how to put it back together again. But I would say, in addition to the use of stimulation increasingly, our biggest emphasis, I would say, in the last two years is preparing for operations in a contested environment and beefing up our training in that area. Uh, some of the maritime academies have varying amounts of naval science courses they have to take before we hire some of their uh, graduates as officers. Uh, some, uh, some come to us ex-Navy, actually. Some are ret retired or former surface warfare officers or senior chief quartermasters in the Navy or engine or things like that. They do very well. Uh, but uh, what we've found, basically, is that uh, some of the skills, the high-level warfare skills had atrophied. Some of the emission control uh, um, time, I guess you could say, actually uh, it hadn't been that great over the last 15 years when we, we didn't have much in the way of a, a, a near-peer competitor, now we do. So we've uh, developed an in-house naval operations basic course that we're running. We've run about 85% of our deck officers through it, including our masters. And we've uh, also developed a second classified course for a second week that we're going to roll out very soon. We've already run, run a, a, like a beta test of that course. Some of our private sector partners have expressed interest in getting their facilities cleared to teach that second week course for some of the, uh, so that uh, the crews and some of our, our privately operated ships under contract will have the same level of expertise so they can work uh, well with the, with the Navy fleet and make sure that in a, in a future war they can survive and perform their mission and minimize their likelihood of getting sunk. I think, um, in addition, Military Shield Command is reaching out to organizations like the Naval Warfare Development Centers and DARPA in a way that we'd never have before, and it's influencing some of our training, actually. That's Michael Morris, the Director of Total Force Management at Military Sealift Command. Part of a panel discussion I moderated on modernizing military training at this year's Navy League Sea Air Space Conference. We'll get into some questions and answers with our panelists after another short break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, and this week's program is an abridged version of a panel discussion I moderated at this year's Navy League Sea Air Space Conference. Our topic is modernizing military training, and most of our panelists so far have talked about the role of new technologies of various kinds in making the entire process more efficient and more effective. I think it's probably important to acknowledge that technology is not going to solve everything here, right? So, for example, I'm I would be surprised if you guys shut down all your small arms ranges and started doing all of your weapons quals on, on first-person shooter video games. So, so what's the right way to think about which types of training are most conducive to you know, an app-based solution or a technology-enabled solution, and, and which ones are not? I'll go ahead and uh, begin there. With the entry-level pipeline, as you might expect, we have that challenge. That is the question that we're asking ourselves right now. Where is it that we can leverage technology? How is it we'll leverage that, tech, that technology to speed learning and to ensure that our Marines have the skills that they need? Because we have this wide spectrum, of huge variance in the type of training. We have everything from aviation mechanics, hydraulics, uh, you know, ejection sheet mechanics, to infantry, 
O3XX Marine who probably needs to be in the field learning to use his map, his compass, learning how heavy his equipment is, learning the field craft that he's actually going to need or she's going to need in order to be a successful infantry Marine. So the question, the study of where it is technology can be leveraged and how it is will apply technology, that is ongoing right now. And for the last two years, we've conducted a number of studies and experiments to see just how much we can leverage technology and where it'll be applied. For the Marine Corps, and if there's any Marines in the room, you'll recognize this, anytime, anytime someone starts talking about moving to technology-based and leaving the field, Marines become afraid, right? That, that's a change. There is no substitute for carrying a heavy load and being in the field. Right. Uh, there is no substitute for knowing exactly how much torque needs to be applied to a bolt when you're repairing an engine. Simulations can go so far. So what we're looking at is the blend, the integration of simulations, where it matters, where it can speed learning. In Pensacola, where we train our aviation maintainers, they are using equipment and engine simulations and you know, white gear simulators to allow an instructor from a control center to train 30 Marines mechanics on a piece of equipment. He can then introduce 30 different challenges, 30 different fails or errors into the system while the Marines are working on the simulators. He can train them at a rate and in a different way that plays to their strengths, mitigates their weaknesses, and allows them to get the set and reps required. So that when they do go to the hangar and they work on an actual piece of white gear, then they are that much more effective when they actually put their hands on the system. They've had hundreds of reps, whereas if he only trained on the actual equipment in the hangar, he's got to deal with safety issues, he's got to deal with POL issues, he's got to deal with in, you know, equipment that runs or does not run, and you have eight students with hands-on equipment and 22 students standing around watching. Um, in those ways, we know that there are certain MOSs where, and a matter of fact, our studies have revealed that we know that we can use simulators in at least 25 different MOSs that will significantly enhance and speed training. Conversely, we know that there is no substitute for taking infantry Marines out to the field, having them sweat, breathe hard, then try to employ their weapon systems, go through the sets and reps, because that's the environment that they work in. So there's a little bit of variance, but that is the study. That is the challenge when you look at the entire spectrum of how it is we'll employ technology. But we do know that there is great utility in moving in this direction. I told you that right now we have 25,000 folks in the training command enterprise, 18,000 of those are students, and anywhere between 2,500 to sometimes 5,000 of those Marines are awaiting training. Because of the, the industrial age model, they're waiting on a classroom to become available for an instructor to deliver information. Throughput is limited by our construct. That is what we're trying to break down. That's the change. And from a business perspective, think of 2,500 folks who are getting paid, but they're not actually in training as you would like them to be. Great utility, great application, but there's a couple different examples of how we would see the change being implemented. Admiral, do you want to jump in? Rear Admiral Brian Penoyer, the commander of Coast Guard Forces Command. If I may, I, I, I'm, I'm, as, as with uh, Admiral Knoll's comments about uh, uh, basic training, I'm in violent agreement. Uh, 
the revolution that the Coast Guard went through when we shifted to performance-based training was uh, when you think about knowledge, skills, abilities, and attitudes, we took the, the knowledge piece largely out of the face-to-face -face delivery realm, right? That was our enormous savings. We saved contact time for those times when we needed over-the-shoulder training. Uh, and there's a bunch of reasons why you would want that, but I would, I would direct your attention to attitudes. Attitudes, as in recruit training, don't shift through electronic means. It's been repeatedly studied and proven. That's not how you get where you want to be. And similarly, the application to the real world, as uh, General Work just talked about, uh, that's not something that happens electronically either. Uh, you can dramatically improve the success rates, but I, I think the, the thing that I find most intriguing about technology right now um, is uh, we've been focused a little bit on experiential learning, right? So people don't just learn when you deliver them a training environment. They learn every day in a continuously reinforced learning environment of their day-to-day -day job. Um, and I think that where technology is interesting to me is in its ability to recognize and capture some of what is happening there. And then we know who you are and what you've done and what you know, what you're proficient at. And I can therefore tailor your additional training to what you need to come to the standard we require for you to go do the next job. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, it's also really hard. Yeah. If it was easy, we'd have done it already. Uh, but it's the challenge ahead of us of being really, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about being effective for the folks in the field, but it's also about being effective for the taxpayer. Uh, I think Admiral Noel talked about this. We cannot afford to train you, have you not used the training, and then have to train you again two years later for something. It would, the taxpayer can't afford that. Yeah. Rear Admiral John Nowell, the Navy's Director for Military Personnel Plans and Policy. And let, let, me, let me jump in because, um, I, you know, exactly on the same sheet of music. And, and to your last point, uh, we're shifting now to this being more, in our case, right, for a sailor-centered continuum of learning. Uh, and, and as you said, it's, it's easier to say it than to do it. So ready, relevant learning is, is our path. When you look at some of the training that General Worth uh, talked about, that's a joint uh, training school. What he described is what we call mobile reconfigurable training system. And when you look at the kind of savings that you get in qualification times, I'll just, I'll give you one stat and then I want to tell you the path that we're going down. So for the Virginia class Caterpillar, Caterpillar diesel uh, training, um, we incorporated that into our machinist mate uh, A school pipeline in 2015. And when we looked at the qualification times for 12 Virginia-class submarines uh, before and after the students who completed the course qualified on an average 117 days faster than those who had the older curriculum. So we've got, and I could go through, um, you know, uh, many other stats across other uh, warfare areas. So we, we know that this blended solution that General Worth described reps and sets so that it's not foreign to you when you then actually lay your hands on the diesel works and right it's the way we all do stuff if i want to change a bike tire then i go and pull up the youtube video and i look at it about three times and then i call my wife and she comes and she helps me change your bike tire but but it's 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 the way they're doing things anyway now but let's let's get after how do we track that so um, part of, so first of all, you, you do need some foundation 
And for us, what that means as part of our foundation is that we want an authoritative data environment. That's a fancy way for saying we want a data lake, okay? And we want to know everything about you. We want to have your sailor resume in there, um, and we want it easily accessible across our force development and force management pillars uh, for how we manage that talent. And then when we bring you in, some of the technology we're pursuing, we have uh, an initiative called PAL, the Personal Assistant for Lifelong Learning. So it knows what training you've had, it knows what experience in the civilian world and in the military world, it knows your credentials and qualifications, uh, and then using artificial intelligence uh, and man-machine teaming, we can then pace that training, we can deliver it in different ways. Oh, by the way, we can use it as that sailor takes that, that tablet with them. Oh, by the way, not behind a CAC card, but enabled by multi-factor authentication going into the cloud. You can use it wherever you're at. Then I get a prompt that says, hey, your certification on X, Y, or Z from a proficiency standpoint is going to lapse. You need to do this refresher module. Uh, and you can do it online, but then you're going to have to go in um, to, you know, maybe a brick and mortar that we have on the waterfront close to a ship could be, could be actually on a ship, okay, or at a squadron or with a unit um, to then refresh. That's, that's what we want to get to. And the, and the AI is there now. Um, industry is using it, uh, and I would maintain that, that we're lagging a little bit, but we're working pretty hard to catch up. Again, that's Rear Admiral John Nowell, the Navy's Director for Military Personnel Plans and Policy, part of our conversation on modernizing military training in the sea services at the annual Sea Air Space Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. We're back with some thoughts on where the services plan to prioritize their spending on new training technologies after one last break. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And wrapping up this week's show, which is an abridged version of a panel I moderated at this year's Sea Air Space Conference on how the military services are modernizing their training practices with new technologies. This next question comes from an audience member, Megan Eckstein with USNI News. I wanted to ask about some of the higher end uh, trainer opportunities. Um, Admiral Noel, you mentioned the LCS trainer, which I hear is top notch. Um, there's also the SEAT trainer, the air and missile defense and uh, ASW trainer. So I, I was wondering where the services are willing to make those kind of top notch investments in really exquisite facilities versus where you look to apply technology in sort of a lower cost manner um, that Admiral Penoyer talked about. I'll, I'll go ahead and start. For the Marine Corps, when we buy exquisite systems, I don't know that there's much of a challenge. There's not going to be any risk taken with the Joint Strike Fighter or the simulators or all of the mechanism that actually make that system work. We have to train, you have to sustain in order to employ the capability. The exquisite systems for the Marine Corps aren't really the issue. It is making less exquisite systems more ubiquitous in the training pipeline to find those efficiencies. It gets back to uh, cost value proposition. It is hard to, without the data lake and the studies, it's hard to explain or to make your argument for why you need to make an investment and why we need to make a leap at the lower end of the spectrum. 
For instance, our bulk fuelers can, in simulation, set up a forward arming refueling point in simulation from choosing the hose, laying the hose, connecting the hoses. They can do all those things in simulation. LAV repair technicians can take down an engine, repair the LAV, and in simulation, they can go into the detail of applying thread lock to a particular bolt. You can do those types of things, but the systems aren't necessarily ubiquitous. The classrooms haven't been adapted to fully leverage everything that we've talked about. They exist, but we're simply not exploring, exploiting all of the capabilities because we're limited by some of the you know, brick and mortar institutions that we simply haven't adapted the facilities to really, really move dynamically in that environment. So I would tell you for the Marine Corps, we take no risk with the exquisite systems. That's not the challenge. The challenge is that 15,000 folks who aren't you know, working on a, developing a skill to work on one of those exquisite systems. It's the big bulk of the population that are just doing normal, normal things. Um, that right now are getting done. There isn't, part of the challenge is that we're not missing mission in terms of producing Marines of a particular MOS. Um, it's really, really hard to argue for change when you don't have a problem. Um, but what we're trying to explain here is that there is an opportunity to make the leap. And certainly if we're gonna scale, um, if we're going to be able to scale at some point in time in the future in order to meet, uh, to grow the force dynamically, particularly if it's highly technical, how do you do that if you haven't laid the uh, groundwork and if you don't have the facilities and you haven't set up an architecture, persistent learning environments, et cetera, et cetera, that will make all these things possible. So I would tell you from the Marine Corps, not much risk with the high-end, hugely expensive systems and a lot of status quo and a lot of proponency for status quo uh, where we can save money on the lower end of things. Yeah, I, well, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, you have, to, you have to spend money to save money. So when you look at um, some of the training systems we've talked about, and again, it's a full gamut, right? It's everything from, you know, the smart tablet that I give the EOD students uh, at, uh, at the joint EOD school. Well, guess what? If that knocks attrition down, which we can show by 3%, we spend a lot of money attracting that kind of a person and then we send them through schools before they get to that. So you, you save money across the supply chain when you look at, at how you bring folks in and train them. You then, you then save money. If, if I can in the morning at submarine school have a MERT system where it's a Virginia class radio room and then in 30 minutes over lunch they convert it to be the torpedo room and they're getting those reps and sets, that is, that is much, much cheaper than the way that we uh, were doing it. And then you mentioned the SIATS trainer, which is the Combined Integrated Air uh, and Missile Defense and ASW trainer. It's a little bit of a mouthful. But this idea of integrated training, we're doing the same thing as we look at some of our maritime uh, safety and seamanship training, our MSTC centers that we're bringing online where we where we not only do the bridge crew but with the combat information center um, if if you think about it if i have to spend 500 million dollars to repair a guided missile destroyer after a collision it's much cheaper even though it's high-end training systems that are not inexpensive uh, to put that money in on the front end the rationale though uh, and the reason is the readiness uh, and the war fighting capability uh, and the safety of those crews. And so I, I will tell you, the Navy, the Navy is all in um, with, with doing it, and it's a, it's a little bit different uh, model, um, but, uh, but we're going full bore.
That's Rear Admiral John Nowell, the Navy's Director for Military Personnel Plans and Policy, one of four military leaders on a panel I hosted at this year's Sea Air Space Conference on what the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard are doing to modernize their training practices with new technologies. Again, this was a slightly shortened version of that discussion. We'll post a link to a video of our full 75-minute conversation, including some very good audience questions we couldn't fit in, at federalnewsnetwork.com. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serville. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.